0: This is a quote uh, that's going to be, I think, the theme of this discussion. Um, It was written by Antonio Gramsci uh, while he was in prison, uh, I believe to his son. I think you must like history as I liked it when I was your age, because it deals with living people and everything that concerns people. As many people as possible, all the people in the world, insofar as they unite together in society and work and struggle and make a bid for a better life. Welcome, comrades and friends, to the Highlands Bunker podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. Behind enemy lines, super producer Carl is at a remote location. And joining us today uh, is our old friend, historian, sociologist, author, and professor of democracy and justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Harvey J.K. Professor K., welcome back.
1: Thank you. Really great. And I hope everything's okay in Wilmington, Delaware.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I knew you, you knew Michael Brooks personally. I had met him once and I had corresponded a little with the folks on his show um, I was introduced to him in 2016, around the time Trump was elected. Um, the YouTube algorithm suggested a video based on me watching uh, a lot of work from Mark Blythe, the 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 brown uh, political scientist and economist. Um, Scottish guy, people know that.
1: Yeah, his uh, accent's great, by the uh, way. Yeah, every,
0: everybody knows, the, oh, the Scottish guy, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, he wrote a book called Austerity, uh, the History of a Dangerous Idea. Uh, Michael uh, had a commentary video uh, on a Blythe lecture discussing austerity and how it applied to both Brexit and Trump's uh, victory. And I think, you know, that, that really was about Michael. You know, he was bringing in um, ideas to challenge the, the neoliberal sort of framework. He was talking about, um, you know, international solidarity with, with Europe and, and, uh, and other places. I think this was before the Yellow Vest um, situation in France, but obviously they had applications there. Uh, but anyway, you know, he he inspired me over a few years just to start this part-time and now to sort of branch out and do more with it and and do it full-time. And I did meet him one time in Brooklyn and I've met Matt. And um yeah, I I really uh just for somebody who I didn't know that well, uh, it really hit me hard. Um so, you know, I just want to, you know, extend my sympathy to you because I know you didn't know him and and give you an opportunity to to say some some words about Michael.
1: Yeah, I mean, I about hitting hard I, i was just devastated i mean i'm still feeling it but for a few days there i i couldn't even think of michael without seriously tearing up the first night i was just i was just a wreck and i mean good part because i'd really come this may not even be fair i have no claim on him as in family terms but somehow a relationship seemed to be kind of a uncle and nephew thing for a while and the other thing was, he really honored me at one point. I'm, and it's not about me, but this is to tell you how, you know, a lot of young folks, your generation and even younger, you know, they had that dumb, dumb shit comment, uh, was it okay boomer something like that. But well, Michael actually kind of relished the idea of engaging an older generation of left intellectuals. And he always used to say that he had, he had three mentors. He had others he may have even admired more, but he had three mentors. It was Richard Wolf the economist, who we had on the show regularly there in Brooklyn. Adolf Reed, who just he just adored, um, especially around questions of class and race and and making of history and politics, and then and then and then me. Okay, and I, I felt really honored by that. And so I always came to see Michael. I couldn't quite call him a mentee. That sounded kind of funny. But I used to jokingly say, "Hey nephew, what's going on?" Something like that. And even this past week, two weekends, sorry, the the weekend before he passed away, the night or two before he passed away, I was out on a walk and we were texting back and forth and I was giving him some ideas I thought that might, he might enjoy, not intellectual ideas, but very practical. Hey, have you thought about putting together a book of the best of the Michael Brooks show, that kind of thing. And he said, yeah, you know, it's a great idea. I've been thinking about it. And so anyhow, I mean, it was a back and forth from both theoretical and historical all the way over to the very sort of mundane and practical, like you know, he always used to say, how are you and Lorna doing? Or how are you getting on in this in this pandemic? And I was always worried about him being in Brooklyn because of what was going on in New York City. So when when I was, I was watching The Young Turks, in fact, and Anna Kasparian got this message that Michael had, had passed away and she was also, she was even closer to him perhaps than all the rest of us. And she just broke up and, and I, I couldn't believe it at first, And then i i just i just lost it and um and even now it's i think about i see something and i think oh i ought to send this to michael you know that kind of thing and i know that he's not there to receive it on the other hand i not on the other hand but at the same time i want to say he had two really great producers uh matt leck and david griscom and they're going to do their best to try to carry on the show with his sister for a while maybe something will take off maybe it won't but in any case the legacy Will be maintained by them as much as possible, and by folks such as yourself, and your counterparts in Seattle and Portland and 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 Houston. I mean, there is there are a network of people, both sort of influenced and inspired by Michael, and also contemporary with Michael. And and I and later when we talk after we talk a bit about Gramsci, perhaps I can make some maybe some inspired uh, remarks about your, what you folks should be doing, maybe you're already doing, and how it can contribute to the struggle for uh, a richer and deeper democracy in America.
0: Yeah, I, I, I feel that too. Um, I sent Matt Leck a, a, a note um, about a day afterwards. I couldn't even bring myself to send him anything that day. Um, and I basically said, you know, in, in our little way, and we've already started, um, you know, we're going to try to continue the project. Um, you know, it's not going to be, no one's going to be as funny or, you know, be able to, you know, network or, or be him. Um, and, and we're, we're certainly looking at a different sort of a different kind of project that's going to be local here, but yeah, I mean, that's the best way I can think to sort of, um, take it, you know, keep it, keep it moving just like they're doing with the show, uh, and with his sister. Um, I had seen her, her speak, um, I guess last week and I couldn't, I I couldn't bring myself to, to watch this week because it was just a little too much.
1: Right. Well, I have to say, I, I admire your your determination, your commitment to the local. And in fact, I think that's a really there's a really opportune moment to do just that. And as it grows, it may well you know make connections elsewhere. And it, I'll just project ahead in case we don't have time to get to it all. Is there is such a network of podcasters right now, and some are on YouTube and some are on on audio, and it just strikes me that enough of a network that it would be great to figure out a way to enhance communication among people. Not that everyone has to share the quote party line or anything like that, but rather like what's important, what can we be saying in a local in a local vein or a, or a sort of online vein that can then intersect nationally and maybe internationally.
0: Yeah, I, I think, and and you know, as far as party line or, or there being a hegemony, if we're going to get into Gramsci, some sort of like overall. I don't. I mean, Michael himself, uh, I think, was able to foster, uh, you know, a lot of goodwill with people. But he was, you know, very radical in in, in the pain sense. You know, so, somebody somebody like Adolf Reed uh, is a ra- is, has radical ideas. I think I ha- I think they're correct. Um, but you know, he, he, he still gets himself in trouble. So does Richard Wolf. Um, so yeah, I mean, the tradition is is there to be to challenge and be challenged. I think that was one of the great things about it, so I'm not, I'm not too, not too worried about that. I think.
1: Well, Marx himself, I believe, said uh, history must be studied afresh in every generation, and he, I think, he added to the effect that I am not a Marxist, meaning that don't, don't, don't create a party line, don't, don't hold yourself accountable to a line that's derived from anything past.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about um, Gramsci a little bit. Um, how? You, you started your sort of your scholarship in in Mexico and in, in South America. Maybe you can give us a little information about that because that's the part that I know the least about. I think, and then we can move to um, to Gramsci and the British historians.
1: Well, without without making too long a story of it, since we are talking about a your your
0: entire life. Yeah, if you can tell me your entire life in the next fifteen minutes, that would be great.
1: Well, that I I could try to do that. Well, the main thing is is that when I was fifteen. I- or not even quite 15. I was in a Spanish class in eighth grade, entering, going into ninth grade, and the Spanish teacher, for whatever reason, happened to like me. I wasn't the best in the class, but for whatever reason, she liked me, and there was an opportunity that she could choose one student to go to Ecuador for the summer. And I think, and I think partly I got chosen because I, I, I never hesitated to speak up in class and try out my Spanish. So anyhow, so I went to to me, I went to Ecuador in the summer of. 64 i believe it was right 64 and that sort of put me on a path towards latin american studies and when i got to college i went to rutgers in new jersey i actually was a history major but i had a latin american studies emphasis so i i was doing latin american literature spanish and latin american literature and history with an emphasis in latin america and in my junior year once again a professor said to me how would you like to be the guinea pig he did this all in spanish because he was originally from argentina How would you like to go to Mexico for a semester and be the guinea pig for Rutgers on on an exchange program? wow. So I went to the National University of Mexico, Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México, for the spring semester of 1970, which I was there about six months, and it it was an extraordinary experience. Um, Without going into the details, I really, really became fascinated by U.S. Latin American relations, U.S.-Mexican relations in particular. And also other questions related to, to social order and politics. And while I was there, I decided that I discovered that I, if I wanted to go to grad school, since I really didn't have any money, I was borrowing just to be an undergraduate, the best thing would be to go over to Europe to study because the, the cost of study over there, even for an American, was so low. I went to, went to the University of London and London School of Economics, and I was a, a political science, international relations, Latin American studies student. But while I was there, I had this minor subject, agrarian studies in Latin America, and the young uh, professor, title there, over there was lecturer, really it turned me on to landlord and peasant questions. Land tenure questions, the struggles of peasants to secure land reform, and that kind of thing. And I decided to do this radical shift. I had shifted from history to politics, I was going to now shift to some kind of agrarian studies. And I came back to the States. I'm going to leave out a hell of a lot of the story, but I came back to the States and I went, as I often tell people, from LSE to LSU because they gave me a a fellowship and I could do rural sociology. It was a conservative university, but somehow I had the right professors, especially my mentor who was a Quaker and very open-minded about questions of class and class struggle. And while I was there, I was really trying to figure out how to tell the story of landlord peasant struggles and the way that those struggles had shaped political and life and state organization in Spanish America, uh, Mexico and the the countries of of the Andes. And I was really at a loss because American theory about these kinds of things was pretty weak, to to be honest about it. And I used to go over to this little bookstore just off campus, had to be leftists who were running the bookstore, in spite of the fact we were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I just sat down and I started reading studies of slavery in the South. And I I really focused on one historian who was the premier Marxist historian of those days. He later became a conservative very much later in his life, Eugene Genovese, who wrote about slavery, the political economy of slavery, the, the questions of hegemony that came up in his later work, Roll Jordan Roll. In fact, I titled my dissertation The Political Economy of Seniorialism in honor of his first book, The Political Economy of Slavery. And seniorialism was the term I used to describe landlord-peasant relations or the, you like, social relations of production between landlords and peasants in Latin America. And Genovese became a distant mentor and he kept telling me who to read. He said, you know, don't worry about, don't worry about." American historians generally read, the British Marxist historians. So I was reading Landlord and Peasant stuff from Rodney Hilton's Medieval English Studies. I I went all the way through these British historians. A a few of them really made an impact on my thinking. And um, as, as you know, when I finished my dissertation, I was a Latin Americanist originally, but in the course of the first couple of years out, it was very hard to find a job. But when I did finally land a job here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, having spent a year in Minnesota at a university there, I was doing Latin American studies, but I was really fascinated by Gramsci because of Eugene Genovese. And one of the things that struck me was the fact that, you know, you had different notions about class and class formation or as Marx had once put it in its most simplistic formula, class in itself, class for itself. Um, his presumption was that basically this, the class struggle itself would lead, to a, would lead to that class consciousness. And he had a role for intellectuals, but it was a relatively undefined, ill-defined role in the sense of, you know, there were, there were those who could make sense of the world and so on and so forth. But it was really the working class itself, excuse the expression, working people themselves who would be engaged in their own class formation in the process of class struggle. And then you get the next generation of Marxists, the Marxist Leninists, Lenin himself. And I've, ne- to be honest, not to upset everyone, I, I've never found much in Lenin worth worth uh, embracing. But <clears throat> it is the case that Lenin really did try to, to, to make sense of this whole question of what is the role of intellectuals? And he did have to face the question all the more, if you like, challengingly because he's, he's a Russian and he had to deal with the fact that the industrial capitalist order that had developed in, in Britain in particular, but was emerging in France and over across the Atlantic in the United States, it had emerged in Russia, but the vast majority of working people in Russia remained peasant and, and agrarian. and And for Lenin, it was a question of intellectuals becoming essentially the vanguard. And he actually wrote, you know, workers unto, you know, working class unto itself uh, you know can only develop so much of an of an of an identity and a and a sense of who they are and a consciousness, and in any case cannot I cannot really construct in their, you know as a as a group a vision of the future, that is any kind of socialism. So of course, what he ends up doing, Lenin, and and this becomes the nature of the dictatorship known as the Soviet Union, the authoritarian totalitarian order. Is that he empowers intellectuals as a vanguard, and specifically the the proletarian vanguard is the party. And Gramsci is directly influenced by both Marx and Lenin. I hope this doesn't bore you too much. I'm just but I'm,
0: I'm, well, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I like, so I am Okay. Case,
1: yes. The thing about Gramsci is, is that he clearly admired, I mean, truly admired Lenin, and he and he felt a certain affinity for Lenin because of the fact that that was, the f- number one, the first communist revolution, but even more so the fact that Russia, not unlike Italy, was composed of industrial and, and agrarian sectors, you know, yeah, that's, workers and peasants.
0: That's the one thing I've always, and, and Carl and I just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that people look to, and you, you, you said yourself you would probably get some heat for saying that about Lenin. I don't think so, um, because, again, you know, um, the British Marxist historian spent a lot of time Looking at the the small changes from feudalism and mercantilism into into capitalism, and then the the industrial revolution was sort of moving. Uh, but as you said, Russia is still basically feudal. I mean, there's some industry, but you know they still have a czar. And, that's, it's vastly just agrarian feudalism, and so trying to apply, you know, you're sort of, you have to look at the context of the application of the thing, and that always did fascinate me, so I'm interested in, in the analysis of that.
1: Well, with Gramsci had you know, basically the north and the south question in, in Italy, and the south included not only the southern region of Italy, it also included Sicily. And Gramsci himself came out of Sardinia, which was itself, you know, rural, agrarian, and he comes, and he does this incredible leap from Sardinia to Turin, which is the center of the autumn, it's like going to Detroit from uh, rural Mississippi directly, right? And so, to him, this whole question of urban industrial and rural agrarian is, is is critical. But but Gramsci himself goes well beyond both Marx and decidedly Lenin in terms of asking himself what is the what are the roles what's the role of an, of intellectuals in this kind of order now. What Gramsci develops is an understanding that neither, one, neither Marx nor Lenin had ever thought about, and that is Gramsci developed the idea of contradictory consciousness. What he does when 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 people use the term hegemony, it implies it implies, and this was not what Gramsci meant. It implies a kind of cultural domination, and that's not really at all Gramscian. Okay, that's like taking the idea of hegemony in international relations of an imperial power and applying it to the question of the social order. And what what he had in mind is the fact, first of all, that hegemony is an effort to contain the class struggle from below, but it ends up becoming simply that kind of constant effort to maintain, or a better way of looking at it is, is that the social order, if in in any way, there's some kind of hegemonic process underway, remains an order of struggle, that is, the experience of exploitation and oppression by working people is never going to cease to to literally influence their capacity to create solidarities with their fellow workers and, and their sense of antagonism to those who are exploiting and oppressing them. Meanwhile, if you've got this very powerful, lack of a better word, ruling class that's seeking it, doing its damnedest to try to create an idea that the way things are is the way it has to be, What Gramsci understands is that this creates a very complex consciousness among people. Sort of the dominant, I can use this term, ideology, but also the ideology that emerges among working people themselves, like mother's milk, okay, it it, it emerges out of their own experience together in struggle, in pursuit of of immediate and longer-term possibilities. So he talks about an order of struggle and this idea of contradictory consciousness. Now, then this raises the question of what role do intellectuals play? Now, he says most intellectuals end up basically serving the the dominant class. okay? But he says there are those intellectuals who either emerge out of the working class itself by various means or who align themselves so intimately with the working class that they come to be seen as organic intellectuals. Organic, you know, you can kind of imagine the sort of the, the blood and ideas flowing between them. And you know, let's not forget that Marx himself said that even the philo- you know even the philosopher needed to be educated. And what he meant by that is working pe- that that those with I who think they're the the master and and monopolizer of ideas need to understand that if they're going to try to build a more radical democratic order, and that's really what socialism is, then they're going to have to they're going to have to engage the experiences. Of those who suffer the exploitation of race. So, in other words, Gramsci is not like completely breaking with any kind of tradition. He's rooting himself very firmly in the original Marxian understanding, but also picking up the question that Lenin asked but answered so inadequately, in my in my own opinion. And clearly, Gramsci would never have spoken ill of Lenin at at that time. But it's clear his own work transcends that of Lenin. So, and by the way, I, I haven't said anything about Trotsky, but I've always enjoyed reading Trotsky's Life and, and Ideas. Let me make that clear. <laughs> Having said that, however, okay, let's, so here's the point. So for, so for Gramsci, it's a matter of that you learn from, you know, as much as possible, you know, I'm not gonna say you have to embed yourself, but you immerse yourself in their, in their experiences of working people and you, in this dialectic, and here's a term I haven't used in a long time, in the dialectic, in that, dialogue or dialogical exchange, who talks about dialogical? Maybe Paulo Freire from Brazil, I'm forgetting who. Um, out of that emerges both a better educated intellectual and hopefully a more, a better educated uh, working class, which then if recognizes that in and of its, it, among themselves, they have sort of, if you like, embryonic ideas about what a better world might be like. But moreover, the possibility that they themselves can bring it about—that's as theoretical as I can get. Okay. Yeah, and
0: that's—I mean, I'll—I'll I'll bring it forward because you talk about you know the, the the struggle that over time you can put it in those terms, and I think a lot about continuing the project that we're doing or or whatever any anybody's you know trying to do to further p- these political goals is is really just when it boils down to it a a. Uh, a puzzle of imagination, of getting people, um, as as you said, to 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 inspire people to the realization that they do indeed inside have ideas, and you do have solidarity with other people, and so it, you could improve your condition. Um, but that's the trick, right? Is 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 sort of activating that realization. That's the way I look. I'll, at
1: yeah, I'll just. I, I'm not meaning to jump way ahead, but. I think we've talked about, last time you and I spoke, we were talking about American radicalism. Likely. Yeah, we
0: talked about FDR and Paine. We, we right, have... and
1: so I want to make clear that people say, well, God, this is the guy, you know, he's talking about Marx, he's referring to Lenin, he's talking about Gramsci. This is the guy who wrote about Thomas Paine and later FDR. Well, I want to make something very clear. Thomas Paine is the historic, the, pr- the foremost example of an organic intellectual. And I mean this. Here's a, Because he came out of the artisan working class of Britain, and which was not that, the British and American artisan working class were like cousins basically. And he comes to America and he sees all the more in America, which is in the midst of this rebellion. He sees the possibilities that that present themselves because farmers and artisans and slaves indeed, that working people in all their diversity are in struggle. They're already literally throwing out British authorities, but they haven't yet come to, to, to quite make sense of what they might ultimately accomplish. And so here's Thomas Paine in this sort of pre-industrial setting. Thomas Paine is speaking to them in a way so as to make them aware that they have it in their power to begin the world over again. And that is a quote from Thomas Paine himself. So what I found fascinating about Gramsci is not that I could spout theory, not that I could dismiss Lenin, not that I could recapture the best of Marx, but also that it just literally helped me understand how we've succeeded at times in not simply witnessing struggle, but perhaps advancing the radical democratic project we subscribe to. And if I could do one thing in Marx's, I mean, I'm not gonna, Marx doesn't need me to promote him, but I wanna, make, I wanna let people know that in all the readings I did of Marx, and there were so many beautiful lines. I mean, Marx wanted to be a poet before he ever wanted to become anything else. And he, when he was in university, used to write love poetry to, uh, to the woman he was going to marry. But listen to this, listen to this quote, and this is from Marx in 1843. Most people would say this is the pre-Marxian Marx, okay? That his, his most interesting philosophical writings begin in 1844, and then later, of course, he becomes the, the writer with Engels, his dearest friend of the Communist Manifesto, and later Das Kapital, and so on and so forth. But listen to this quote, I love this quote from Marx in 1843, in a letter. It will then be clear that the world has long possessed the dream of a thing of which it needs only to possess the consciousness in order to really possess it. It will be clear that the problem is not some great gap between the thoughts of the past and those of the future, but the completion of the thoughts of the past. Now, this is a Marx who's already involved in questions of class. It, the question of class emerges all the more forcefully, all the more powerfully in the course of that decade of the 1840s. But he already has this idea that people carry within themselves a dream, an idea that could be fulfilled as people come to consciousness of it. So, okay, there, again, there's my philosophical of your, your
0: theory. Well, I did want to talk about radicalism because, um, you know, it's such a. A theme of of pain and of these ideas and and we we talked about it the last time um it was interesting today i want to use this as an example of uh sort of people being tricked not to think about what might be inside them so uh john lewis's funeral was today and uh and i i respect john lewis um i i know people who have met him and know him um I actually, I heard him one time say that when he was going out to do an action, he'd always carry an apple and a toothbrush in case he got arrested. So that when I, now when I go out and do protests, I carry an apple if I can, because it just reminds me of him. Well, uh, Bill Clinton was eulogizing him today. Are you familiar with this news? It just happened this morning.
1: Um, Go ahead. I think I know where you're going. So Clinton,
0: Clinton frames in the eulogy this idea that, John Lewis had sort of one philosophy for change, and Stokely Carmichael had another. Um, and the words he used, I wrote it down. What did he say? Oh, and 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 and, and happily, in the end, John Lewis prevailed. That's what he said. I, I, I you know, um, for for people who don't know, Stokely Carmichael uh, was a, a Black Power uh, activist. He he changed his name to Kwame Ture, um, and he died in the late '80s, I think, in Guinea. Um, but I I I find that a very odd time to basically say if you get less radical, you've prevailed. Uh, or do you know what I mean? I I, that's what I because I guess maybe I read it that way because I knew I was going to be speaking with you later in the day. But when I when I heard that, I'm like, you're like, it's it's the it's the anti Professor K. You know, it's like don't do that. That's don't challenge, don't threaten us. Just you know, do this, that's the way to do it. and coming from all people, um, yeah, just it, uh, it rubbed me the wrong way, I have to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, funny, usually it's presented to me as Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X and and, my, and I will say that my preference has just generally always been Malcolm uh, not Malcolm X, sorry Martin Luther King. Um, King was a radical and um, and and it took so it took uh, malcolm x a long time to come to the place sadly within his last year of living that really could have been a, a major force in history he really could have been but he didn't have the chance to do that whereas martin luther king was such a possible force in history that there were those who felt the imperative even beyond his own ranks to take his life okay well the question of John Lewis versus Stokely Carmichael, I don't even know if I can answer it properly because it's all set within its historical moment. And I mean, John Lewis was one of the bravest men of the 60s. I mean, literally walking into the, like his not unlikely death when he got bashed on, um, what's the name of that bridge? Uh, Edmund Pettus. Thank you, thank you. Um, so I, I, take, I don't think it takes anything, let's put it this way, I don't know why Bill Clinton had to frame the question like that. That's the, well, that to me is the begin
0: I I guess that's Yeah, and I guess that's the thing. I'm I'm I don't think in any way it's um it, I wouldn't even have that conversation. I mean, one person did one thing, the other one did the other. You 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 did the dichotomy between uh Malcolm X and, and uh Martin Luther King Jr. I I'm not even really interested in having that debate. I'm wondering why my bigger question is why Why would anybody be interested in having that debate? And that's the interesting question. Is to me because
1: Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton never had any courage. That's fair. Okay, I believe that. And um, and did he think he was having courage by saying what he did? I mean, look, I I mean, I I, I've been the last few years, and I felt terrible when he when he when he was stricken with cancer. But I was just really outraged by. uh, John Lewis at one point, when in 2016, he endorsed Hillary Clinton. And when he did endorse Hillary Clinton, he actually said, well, where was Bernie back in the 60s? Well, it didn't show John Lewis to be well educated, frankly, in that he failed to, to know that Hillary Clinton was herself a Goldwater girl okay back in the 60s a goldwater girl a republican goldwater girl whereas bernie was was getting arrested for for civil rights activism in chicago but i so let me make that clear that we all make mistakes and the only time i really felt lewis had made a mistake was in 2016. it was really tough on me because i really so admired him and i thought how could he say something so utterly stupid okay but and I've said that before, so this isn't speaking ill of somebody after they've passed away. I've said this for the past few years, but it, but it remains the case. As a young man, he was terribly brave, and in his own way, he was always brave. And, and I, I I can't say it. Stokely Carmichael. Look, Black Power shocked me back in the 60s because I believed my first politics were civil rights in the 60s, and I even to this day still hold on to the the sort of Martin Luther King, John Lewis vision of a more, and by the way, a Philip Randolph vision, I want to make that clear, he's my real hero in that sense, of an America which has transcended, has literally transcended the legacy of slavery and the sort of the, the evils of racism. So I mean I had I, I trouble, but it's also the case that Black Power inspired a generation to assert itself. The tragedy was that it split and splintered the movement of civil rights, and civil rights has never been as strong in the wake of that until perhaps today. And and we're we're at this very very curious moment. I hope you don't mind I'm leaving the subject a little bit.
0: No, actually, I kind of wanted to, to, to move into this. Uh, maybe I'll just segue like this because, um, you know, as someone who um, talks the way you do and, and has done your scholarship, I saw an interview you did uh, with Penn uh, about some of your writing and found out that you yourself have never been arrested for, for civil rights. I, wow. was, I was like, yeah, we got to get you out there, get you thrown in the clink.
1: No, not at my age. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, what is your what is your take on this on this current thing? Like, I, I'm juxtap, you know, not that it has to be, it's got to be a mix of a lot of different things. Um, but you you mentioned about the Black Power movement splintering, and I feel like I'm already seeing that with some of the uh, some of the actions and some of the groups that are springing up, going down, being questioned. So I, I I I don't know. I more fall to the A. Philip Randolph side of labor organizing as uh, i do i think that's because that's you have a built-in sort of sort of thing there when you go out into the street with these different groups whether they be and 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 i know you know most all the people i know that i do it with um uh, are are real activists and believers in a certain set of things but when you get more and more people out it becomes splintered the message gets muddled it gets violent and um I don't know. I always go back to the labor bit of it. So I don't know, I'd like your your thoughts on.
1: Well, that. as long as okay, so let me say this about A. Philip Randolph, and then enable us to to come back to where we are. So, as most people probably know, but maybe they don't. A. Philip Randolph was the great black labor and civil rights leader of for much of the twentieth century. Well, from the nineteen twenties through his death in nineteen seventy, somewhere in the early seventies, I think.
0: No, I was going to say and, seventy. So.
1: Yeah. Well. Okay. And and um. Philip Randolph became the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters which was the great black union of of workers who served on the Pullman trains basically the trains that had you know the restaurants and the sleeping quarters and basic and he or he was the leader of the organizing effort of that and in the course of the organizing effort in the 20s and 30s they became a recognized union inside the afl CIO Um, but it's interesting that in 1926 at the at one of the less successful, at least in terms of percentage of workers in 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 unions, moments in the nineteen twenties, of course, the so-called Roaring Twenties. Randolph gave a speech. Have you heard me talk about this, Rob?
0: I'm not sure. Probably. I probably when you when you get into it, I probably have. But go yeah, ahead.
1: Well, I I'm only recently have I mentioned this a number of times, and i okay. and I always and I fully grant, you know, I'm a white guy who's seventy years old, and I got to be careful about, you know speaking on behalf of civil rights, but but, but in my vision, we're, we're, we are all in this together, although I admit some of us have more at stake. So here's the thing. I mean, A. Philip Randolph spoke in 1926, and at, at a sesquicentennial celebration of the American Revolution, July 4th. And he said, you know, his, basically he said historians had really misunderstood Reconstruction. I mean, too many historians had completely missed the boat on the story of recon- the post-Civil War South, and he said, "We, you know, we brought, meaning we African American working people, we brought democracy to the South during Reconstruction. Never before had there been a democratic South." And he said, "And we, you know, he didn't. Use, I'm paraphrasing. We black workers have served alongside white workers in, in basically in the labor movement ever since." Okay. And he said in 1926 that perhaps our next gift to America will be to help in the creation of economic citizenship. And what he meant is not just that we'll we'll be able to organize all the more unions, but all the more that we're going to create a new kind of Bill of Rights, which of course later FDR himself proposed in the Economic Bill of Rights. Well, this is the same Randolph who in the 30s was very much a part of expanding the labor movement. This was the, the Randolph who in 1941, after he heard FDR deliver the four freedom speech, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear as, the, as what would become America's World War II war aims. He then proposed um, or demanded by way of, a, of threatening to bring 10,000 African-Americans to Washington, he called for the integration of the defense industries. And later when Roosevelt met with him, he said, it was going to bring 100,000, and this, this, this threat or promise propelled Roosevelt to sign an executive order, which in fact ordered the desegregation. To, they resisted the industries, but desegregation of the defense industries. And then later in 1963, oh, sorry, after World War II, he pushed Truman to deseg to order the desegregation of the military. And then in 1963, it was his idea to resurrect the March on Washington movement that he proposed in 1941, and that became the March on Washington in, 19, in August of 63 um, for jobs and freedom. Notice jobs and freedom, which saw 250,000 Americans, white, black and white, or white and black, uh, turning up in D.C., an occasion at which uh, Martin Luther King offered the famous speech, I Have a Dream. And we should not forget that the capacity, the fact that you could bring hundred, sorry, 250,000 people to DC to, to carry out that march was underwritten by the UAW headed by Walter Ruther, the great left labor leader of the 20th century. So I think about that a lot. And I think about the fact that here we have now this remarkable and extraordinary mass turnout. Recently, we could have called it a rising, In every city in the country, and massive sympathy in favor of Black Lives Matter, and I kept asking myself, "Is it possible?" Especially given the fact that in so many cities, the vast numbers of people who aligned themselves with the movement were white, or Latino, Latinx, and so I asked myself, "Is it possible? How can we, how can we, we, how can we articulate a vision for the Black Lives Matter?" struggle that would now, in, in, if you like, embrace for all Americans, as Randolph envisioned it and as FDR proposed it, if you like, economic citizenship. And, you know, I mean, I'll just sidebar and saying, God, if only Bernie were the Democratic candidate right now. Well,
0: I, I have to say, because the, the last thing I, I have, well, it's maybe the second to last thing, um, is I knew we were going to a- eventually arrive at this point you know, how do we, how do we leverage these ideas now with, with unions? How do we, for example, I was reading about a lot of the public uh, reactionary backlash to a lot of a Philip Randolph's marches and stuff. And, you know, obviously there was a huge public, you know, they were, they were not popular and there's a, a wide swath of, of, of Americans who don't think these marches are popular. I do agree with you that I love the diversity and the size and the, the scope they seem to be happening everywhere I mean they're happening here all the time in Little Wilmington Delaware um but to be able to focus that in some political way and just this week you know we started talking about the Democratic platform now that you know now that our sort of progressive Bernie side lost uh, and our uh our state's favorite son has won
1: um, <laughs> yeah right I we
0: yeah, we, we can never forget. That's one thing we can I,
1: Wait, did you, did you read, what's the Wilmington paper, quick? what's the, the, new, about?
0: the news journal.
1: Did you happen to see the big ad taken out by the descendants of the Roosevelt New Deal in the, a, a letter to, to Biden?
0: No. I look at uh, the paper online. The Wilmington
1: paper last week, so everybody was sending it to me. So to it was Franklin that. Roosevelt's grandson. Francis Perkins' granddaughter, I think, Harry, Harry, um, Harry Hopkins' grandson, and Harold Ickes. In other words, it was like the descendants of oh, the, the, the most new progressive, new de- the most progressive New Dealers. Right. And they they within the last couple of weeks issued this open public letter demanding a twenty first century New Deal, which you know included the calls. It, it was close to Bernie's platform but it didn't use the term like Medicare for all, but it really did push. I was really surprised because the people who were, the people who who were talking about these grandchildren were not necessarily the most progressive Democrats of the day, but it is the case that somehow they were now propelled perhaps from these, by these struggles and the left of the democratic party to call for this kind of progressive, indeed almost radical action. So I was very disappointed, God was I disappointed when the Democratic Party this past week issued a what preliminary platform or platform which did it doesn't, not, include, doesn't it look not good. include Medicare for All.
0: Doesn't doesn't look great, no. Um Yeah. Uh actually Carl just put threw this up in, in the chat. So yeah, I'm I'm looking at it here. Uh uh New Dealers, it's, and they they mentioned all the new dealers. Um yeah, I mean and, and I guess this is this is my sort of cynical side. Um, you know, I, I don't see, not, not that the, you know, um, not that the, what, what the policy, what the platform says is ever followed. Um, it's certainly not psychosanct. It's, it's almost like a throwaway sort of any, nobody gets held to it one way or the other really. Um, so I don't want to make too much of it other than to say, um, yeah, it's, it's, I felt a lot more politically optimistic with Bernie doing something in the political realm, and now I'm sort of a little more pessimistic about it. Um,
1: Yeah, Every uh, day that passes, I get a little more worried that, that the possibility of some kind of rejuvenated... Look, I mean, the vision would involve serious action on the part of labor leadership to embrace, and I don't just mean issuing a statement, I mean, truly embracing this struggle from below that we've seen in America's streets. It would mean somebody like Sarah Nelson, the head of the airline flight attendants union, emerging now as at the head of the afl cio or at, at the head of some kind of coalition of labor unions.
0: Well, when you explain what when you explain a Philip Randolph to people who don't know the historical sort of context about that being such a huge union, because this is how people got around the country. Um, I think of Sarah Nelson because this right, is a, this exactly. is this is the new mechanism of how people like these are the these are the serve the professional service people in that it's it's, it's I, I think of those very in parallel tracks. And the fact that she is a fairly leftist radical labor person, that does give me some optimism. I will say that.
1: Yeah. Now, the difference is this when A Philip Randolph directed all of his work, all of his union brothers to go out across the country to get off their trains and connect with local fraternity, black fraternities and sororities, with local church groups, with local black business organizations. What he was doing was he was telling these workers, you are the organic intellectuals. He didn't use those words, but your task is to motivate them to become part of this March on Washington movement. And it did turn out to be the case in major cities in America, they held massive rallies in favor of the promised summertime March on Washington. Now, I don't know if Sarah Nelson has advised her workers. Maybe I'll send her a text and say, hey, I have an idea for you. You know, So that when they get off and they're staying overnight in these cities, that they hang out in bars and taverns and elsewhere and start talking up progressive <laughs> labor. Yeah,
0: foment, foment some, some radical laborism out there. Yeah,
1: yeah. But there's no question about Sarah Nelson's commitment to progressive action. I mean, you know that unfortunately the presidency of the american federation of labor and C- congress of industrial organizations doesn't come up i believe until the autumn of 2021 because now would have been the great time to see her emerge as as a leader for those of you who don't know she also co-chaired the the economy task force the biden sanders task force which did not get everything in there in the in their report that they wanted as a way of stimulating interest like, you know, they wanted a federal job guarantee for all workers who might end up suffering unemployment. A whole bunch of other things, but it, but it, there's no question about Sarah's progressivism, and I I, just, I I relish the fact that we've become friends these la this past year.
0: Excellent. Well, I I want to um, sort of bring us to our current state, uh, and get and get some comment from you about um, maybe you can maybe you can because lift our spirits a little bit. Oh, but uh, I do want
1: to lift your spirits with one thing, okay? Yeah. And I am good at quotes.
0: <laughs> well, I, I was going to give you my, actually my favorite Gramsci concept cuz I, I think of it as a concept, but I guess there is a there's a quote that's a little bit different, but it's a pes, pessimism of the mind with optimism of of the heart. Um so that's it's, it's
1: was, it was well, hold on. It's, how does it how does it go? How does how it go? Goes, goes, pessim, pessimism pessimism of the intellect Optimism, Optimism of the, of the will. will, which wasn't Optimism his word. The, the words, were okay. t- It was a French intellectual's words that he adapted, and I okay. used to love quoting that. And then I got concerned that I didn't really like, I didn't really like it as much. But I'll explain why. Yes, please. So, the pessimism of the intellect meant clearly critical thinking at, at its most profound in its most profound way, and what that means, pessimism of the intellect is. And this this should be true for all of us do your damnedest to recognize when you're wrong okay don't don't let an optimism of the intellect get in your way. because if you're going to try to chart or or help construct the way to a path to a project of reconstruction how's that you've got to know that you're not about to go over the edge so Pessimism, of the intellect, make sure you can recognize when you're wrong. Optimism of the will, it's as if despite everything you've just, you know, thought about, you should never lose hope, which sounds great, but I kind of wish it would be like possibilism of the will. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, we, we couldn't remind everybody that Gramsci did die in a fascist prison, so, I mean, he <laughs> it never, it, uh, so.
1: But even in the prison, it's interesting that he continued to operate as an organic intellectual, it's said, amongst his fellow prisoners. So, don't abandon the project either. But I was going to read to you something that I'm di- dying to find this quote. It was one of FDR's appointees, I believe first to a cabinet position, then to the Supreme Court. and. Early on, before he got on the Supreme Court, this man said, it might have been Robert Jackson, who said, uh, look, look at the subways, okay? What do you see, okay? When he says subways, of course, he means all those mass tra- underground mass transit. So what do you see? And do you see something like, you know, do you only see the difference between white and black, or do you see, and he talks about Americans and all their diversity. And if that diversity upsets you, then you're in trouble, basically is what he says, because that diversity is America. And that's the future of America. And so when I looked out at those protests in the streets, however upsetting it was to see fellow Americans outfitted like Gestapo and, and, and you know, paramilitary and military forces trying to crush those, those marches, I kept looking at those who were not outfitted like that, those who were young, sometimes in their teens and their 20s. And I thought, now that's America. The diversity was so evident and the solidarity was evident. And that's why I kept hoping maybe this was the moment that, that groups, especially like labor, could find a way to truly embrace that because that's the labor movement today as well. And that's the way we, Rejuvenate and refresh ourselves as Americans. Anyhow, that was I was just a footnote to all the things we were talking about. No, it's
0: it's beautiful because uh, Lula uh, said something to Michael in an interview, very similar to that, uh, about some of the criticism that Lula would get, uh, bringing people uh, so many people out of poverty and making sure that you know the the that there was money spent on. Uh, infrastructure and he would, and people would say you know it used to be I could go to the airport and it was fancy I could now the airport looks like a bus now it looks like a bus station but the point is that that's if people are, are if, if if as you said if robert jackson said if you look around and you don't like that you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to deal with it cuz that's what it is um you know that's all of us if if you're going to if you're going to study history of as many people as possible uh, and, and as much context as possible, um, you have to embrace that. You have to, you know, that has to be that has to be something that, uh, yeah, that you don't look down upon or think it's a problem. So I, I take I, I, I take that to heart.
1: FDR in, was, was gave a warning to the very conservative white daughters of the American Revolution. He sent them a message, and he said, "Don't forget, we are descended from immigrants and revolutionists." And when we look at young people, we should we should hope that they become even more American than we are. So.
0: <laughs> everyone, you can become a patron of the show at Patreon.com/slash/TheHighlandsBunker. Uh, follow us at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Uh, follow Professor K on Twitter. Uh, and, right. as, uh, uh, and as J.K. right, Harvey J.K. And as we've always said here since the beginning, and uh, Michael said it too, left is best.
1: Left is best. Thank you, Rob. Thank Thank you. you.